Hey, all you nature nerds, this is You're Gonna Die Out There. Welcome back, Nature Nerds. This week is our Peace Corps episode. Jen and I are again doing some remote recording. Hello. From my house to yours. So far away. So we'll be happy when uh, we're able to record in the room together. I've missed seeing your face, Jen. Now you're just a disembodied voice. (laughs) It's really strange. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, I've missed missed, uh, our recording sessions. I feel like this is almost over, and I apologize for my nasally self, uh, and the audio may be a little different, but you know, we're going to get through this. We're going to power through. And this one is, it's important. It has to be done this week because it's Peace Peace Corps Corps week. week. 61 years, Megan. We've been in Peace Corps a long time. Just kidding. That's right. We did get a couple of stories from folks that we're going to share with you guys today. But first, I would like to share a little bit of science news. Oh, let's do it. I know everybody's super aware of the fighting that is going on in the Ukraine with Russia, I guess, attempting to invade. No, they're invading. I feel like they're not getting the response that they were uh, thinking was going to happen. In the Ukrainian people, I I always knew they were badass because I have some close people to me that are from Ukraine and I knew they were pretty cool but I mean this the the level of camaraderie of like heroism it's unbelievable how much people are just standing their ground and doing what needs to be done to protect their home and our hearts go out to you and there is a Peace Corps Ukraine and we've posted a couple things just an update from Peace Corps Ukraine that they're all safe the thing I wanted to talk about that actually Jen you had forwarded this to me was I don't know if you forwarded me this particular article but I found this on iheartdogs.com, which is obviously a site that loves animals. And it is entitled People Fleeing Ukraine Cling to Their Beloved Pets Amid War. This is by Molly Weinfurter. There are a lot of people who are evacuating with all of their animals. Just reading this article and feeling like, wow, what if we were in that situation, how would I transport five cats and Saber and my son? And myself, that's just mind boggling to me. Oh, yeah. They're packing up like a suitcase if they can. But the most important things, yeah, of course, your kids and your pets. It's hard not to watch without getting really emotional about it, like all of it. Mm-hmm. But seeing people with the, they had the bubble cat carrier, very stressful. Uh, one of the cool things that I read about in this article is that Poland, Romania, and Slovakia are letting Ukrainians bring their pets across the borders without requiring any veterinary paperwork, which is great. Because the last thing you want to do when you're trying to flee your country that is being bombed by another country is worry about the paperwork from the vet. There is no time for that. You know, I wouldn't leave my dogs behind. What are you going to do? Leave them at the border? That's good news. I heard that they were opening up everything to, you know, for people coming in, but I'm so glad they are allowing their pets to come in. There are some organizations that were listed in this article that are helping out specifically animals. Uh, one is called You Animals. That's an organization that helps animal shelters that are struggling to collect food and supplies in the Ukraine. Um, Shelter Ugolik, uh, Ugoliak, 
<laughs> I did not say that right. That's an animal rescue and sanctuary that's providing food for animals in need. So Sirius is a shelter in Kiev that currently is needing a lot of support and are looking for donations. And then there's a volunteer organization, uh, Casa Louis Patricole. Patrocole. Uh, they're helping find housing and veterinary care for families with pets to make sure that no animals are left behind. And then lastly, there's the International Animal Protection League. This is a refuge located just outside of Kiev, and they are still caring for hundreds of homeless animals during this time, which is amazing that they're still there caring for those animals. We'll post all those links. Um, you know, I think a lot of people, in, including myself, we all feel a little helpless right now, you know, what can we do? And I think that's what we can do is donate to these organizations that are on the ground trying to help with this crisis. I know we also, have, we've posted a couple of other things. We were also posting about Bats Ukraine. I actually, when I first saw that photo of Bats Ukraine, how they had basically made these shelters for the bats, but it allows the bats to leave where they are keeping them because they were worried that their buildings would be bombed or the bats wouldn't be able to get free mm -hmm. um, and they wouldn't be there to take care of them. So they're like, you know what? We have to figure something else if these bats aren't trapped here. It was kind of heartbreaking because it's like, you know, how many years have they been doing this? And they've been just to kind of, okay, I'm just going to make this thing. And you guys, right? best of luck. Because, you know, you think about pets, of course, you're going to try and take them with you. But when it comes to like wild animal rehabilitation, that's a whole nother situation situation there. Of course, there's a ton of nature nerds and biologists, natural resource managers in Ukraine that are having to literally walk away from lifelong projects and these animals that you still need them. This one is the Bat Rehabilitation Center. It's in, on Instagram. It's bats underscore Ukraine. And they also have a Patreon link. So you can support them if you if you can. Even though there's still bombing happening, they're still going back and checking on these bats. And they say uh, the latest update was that so far everybody's okay for their staff. I think they said some of the bats did go on their own volition, but some haven't. Just stayed. They were like, we'll hang out. They're like, I think, it, is it better in here? Because it sounds really bad out there. So maybe they're just like, and it's not, I don't think it's the right time of year because it's really cold. I don't think it's the right time of year that they would be releasing these bats yet. We really wish them the best. I did want to talk a little bit about Chernobyl today. Just some background on Chernobyl. It's one of the worst nuclear accidents in history up until the one in Japan, which I'm blanking. Fukushima. It's in northern Ukraine. The reactor, I'm sure a lot of people know about this, had exploded and burned. More than 30 years on, scientists estimate the zone that's around the plant not to be habitable for up to 20,000 years. So starting in 1977, there were some scientists who installed four RBM MK nuclear reactors, and I do not know what RBMK stands for, but basically they installed these four nuclear reactors at the, the Chernobyl power plant. On April 25th, 1986, they were doing just routine maintenance. It was on the fourth reactor, and some of the workers used their downtime to test whether the reactor could still be cooled if the plant lost power. But during this test, uh, I guess the workers didn't follow the right safety protocols, and the power surged inside the plant, and that is what caused this chain reaction of explosions. And then the nuclear core itself was exposed, and radio radioactive material went out into the atmosphere. So that is 
is how that happened that, you know, immediately firefighters and helicopters came out to try and subdue the blaze. There were two deaths in the initial explosions. A lot of first responders, including those firefighters, were hospitalized following the exposure. But the crazy part about this story is that no one was evacuated until 36 hours after the disaster. Part of it was that they didn't want people to know that this had happened wow. because it's like the 80s, right? We're still like Cold War time. I did not know all the details about this. And there's this political risk for other people knowing about it. They didn't want to publicize it, but they had to eventually say something because the radiation spread all the way to Sweden. They did eventually announce it on the 28th. So the 25th is when it happened. The 28th is when they finally announced it. This is the time of the Soviet Union. So that's still, you know, Ukraine is considered part of the Soviet Union during that time. It said up to 30% of Chernobyl's 190 metric tons of uranium was released into the atmosphere. They evacuated 335,000 people from the surrounding areas and established the 19 mile wide exclusion zone around the reactor. In the end, uh, there were 28 people who died as a result of the accident. So the two initial from the explosion, the rest of the folks, I guess that was just exposure to radiation. Over 100 more were injured. And the United Nations Scientific Committee on the Effects of Atomic Radiation has reported that more than 6,000 children and adolescents developed thyroid cancer after being exposed to radiation from the incident. I guess there are some people who challenge that particular claim, but either way, it's like a lot of people being exposed to intense amounts of radiation. So international researchers predicted that ultimately around 4,000 people exposed to high levels of radiation could succumb to radiation-related cancer. There are another 5,000 people exposed to lower levels of radiation that may also suffer similar kinds of cancer or fates. The, after the disaster, what remained of the reactor, I, they contained it inside this steel structure that was, I guess, finished in 2016. I guess it just sat there mm -hmm. with nothing containing it for a while from 86. What was that? Did I say 86? Yeah, to 2016. And then it says containment efforts and monitoring continue and cleanup is expected to last until at least 2065. Wow. Which blows my mind. Yeah. So the surrounding forest and wildlife were obviously impacted after the accident. There's about four square miles within the exclusion zone. It's called the Red Forest because so many trees ended up turning reddish brown and died after uh, being exposed to such high levels of radiation. Mm -hmm. There's currently actually active research that goes on in this area. And the scientists who are doing that research have found that, yeah, trees grow back, animals come back into those areas. There's still like new generations of forest animals being born in the Red Forest, uh, but they found evidence of elevated levels of cataracts and albinism, 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 and lower rates of beneficial bacteria mm -hmm. in some of the wildlife in those areas. At the same time, because there's no humans in the exclusion zone, a lot of wildlife have increased. So lynxes, elk, they're, all their numbers are increasing. And actually in 2015, scientists said there were seven times more wolves in the exclusion zone than in nearby comparable reserves. And nobody wants to bother them because they're like, oh, leave them. They're like full of radiation and we don't want to you know, hunt those animals and the animals are like, it's fine. Like the radiation has given me x-ray vision. It's cool. They just fly around at night. They're just like <laughs> super whatever. What are they called? Uh, Marvel. They're, they're like <laughs> X-Men, but animals. In total, 
the cost in U.S. dollars of this incident was $235 billion in damages. And actually, I don't know if that's like just the incident itself or if that includes all of this time afterwards of like mitigation, building that steel structure and all of those things. But still, either way, it's a lot of money. Right. I don't remember which comedian or whoever was talking about the news with Ukraine. And I might have been Trevor. No, I can't remember. But they were saying, you know, that Russia had taken Chernobyl, that area first. And Ukraine was like, yeah, it's cool. <laughs> like they yeah. were just like, it's, it's fine. That's fine. I'm actually going to talk about that here in a second. I was, what's now Belarus, I guess, saw about 23% of its territory contaminated by this accident and they lost a fifth of their agricultural land. That is bad news. It just, and just to give you an idea, as of 2019, there are still 11 operational RBMK reactors that are located in Russia. I don't know if it's these particular reactors that maybe they're more volatile or something, but like I said, I didn't look that part up. Literally, the most I know about nuclear power or anything like nuclear plants is from watching The Simpsons. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. Yes. Chernobyl, in my mind, before I read kind of the details, it's like you kind of know about it. I just assumed that it was this massive amount of people who died. And actually, it's just like long-term effects on the land and the people and the animals. Um, But yeah, kind of a small number in comparison to the impact of this disaster actually died during the incident or shortly after. So So it's going to be the long-term indirect effects that are going to affect people more. It's crazy. You know, no matter what it takes, whenever humans leave an area, the wildlife takes over. (laughs) It's like, that's all they need is for us to go away. It's not going to be deemed clear or clean. Is that what it is? Or mitigated until 2065? It says that scientists estimate that it won't be habitable for up to 20,000 years. But the 2065 number, that's just the cleanup. The cleanup won't end until 2065. Those mitigation measures. And, And even in 2065, they might be like, nope, we need to keep going. You know, like usually you have like a five-year plan at the end of that five years, you like kind of evaluate how this five-year plan go. Let's do another five-year plan. But for this, it's like going to go on forever. We'll make sure in 2065, um, episode 90,035, we'll give an update. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Uh, the the thing that you were talking about that Russian troops had gone and taken over Chernobyl. Uh, this was so this was published four days ago by Ben Turner. What he says is Russian troops have captured Chernobyl's former nuclear power plant after heavy fighting near the Chernobyl exclusion zone, according to an advisor to the Ukrainian presidential office. The attack came as part of a full Russian invasion of Ukraine. This is and actually I I didn't realize this. I guess I kind of realized it, but I didn't fully realize it, that it is the biggest uh, invasion in a, on a European nation since World War II. Yes. Way to go, Russia. Let's say way to go, Putin, because there's a lot of Russians that absolutely disagree. Yeah, that's true. That are like risking their lives to protest this. There is someone working out of the president's office saying it is impossible to say the Chernobyl nuclear power plant is safe after a totally pointless attack by the Russians. This is one of the most serious threats in Europe today. And then President Zelensky, the most badass guy in the world right now, he said, 
said, Russian occupation forces are trying to seize the Chernobyl nuclear power plant. Our defenders are giving their lives. The tragedy of 1986 will not be repeated. This is a declaration of war against the whole of Europe. And there's an advisor to the Ukrainian Interior Ministry that also warned that fighting around the power plant could lead to the potential disturbance of nuclear waste and the spreading of dangerous radioactive material across Europe. About 7,500 more Ukrainian soldiers were stationed inside the exclusion zone between December t- uh, 2021 and February 2022. And then there was a non-military satellite image that was posted on Twitter on Tuesday, February 22nd, so last week, that appeared to show that a pontoon bridge had been erected at this river that's like in that area, uh-huh. right north of the Chernobyl plant. And that is how the Russians were going to be transporting troops into that uh-huh. zone. I don't know if they blew that bridge up. I vaguely remember that there was a story about a Ukrainian soldier mm-hmm. who sacrificed his life yeah. to blow up a bridge. And I don't know if it's that bridge or if it's a bridge to that uh, island. I don't know if it's an island or a bridge going into Kiev. I'm not, I'm not sure, but because there's so much news and there's so much happening that it's, yeah, it's hard to keep track of all the details. All we know is that it just sucks. I think the biggest worry about them rolling up into Chernobyl is that they're going to churn up the contaminated soil. They're going to release more radiation. There's going to be spikes. And they already have seen reports of spikes in radiation happening right now. And they're saying that it's difficult to estimate the risks to the to humans and the ecosystem in that area because right now it's winter. Mm-hmm. Uh, most plants and animal species are hibernating or dormant or have flown south if it's, you know, like a bird species. They're hoping that by the time, you know, nature awakens, the elevated radiation will have been settled down. You, There aren't additional effects. Yeah. And I'm sure all the wildlife there are just like, damn it. <laughs> it's like, I thought you guys were gone. We're 100% behind um, Ukraine. And if there are any return Peace Corps volunteers from Ukraine that want to share your stories, email us. We will definitely share that. So the last thing that I wanted to mention about Ukraine, because we'll leave it on like kind of a, um, I mean, not like the happiest note. Uh, You sent me, Jen, you sent me an article from lovecatsworld.com. Let's just talk about that website, (laughs) lovecatsworld. I love it. I love it. Um, And this article is entitled Ukrainian Cat Cafe Owners Refuse to Leave Their 20 Cats Behind. Yep. It's so hard. They have a lot of pictures of the kitties that are in this cat cafe. I mean, cat cat cafes are getting more popular outside of Japan. Hashtag goals for Guam. Definitely. I mean, we talk about it a lot. We need a cat cafe, roller skating rink combo. Yes. Uh, that has, you know, a recording room in it. Exactly. So the owners of the cat cafe said, if we go, who will feed our cats? We will never leave Ukraine. There are 20 cats here to feed, and this is our life. CNN journalist Aaron Brunette said, they stay because they love their cats. It just made me realize at this moment that people stay for so many different reasons. Videos of these cats running on little treadmills and it's heartwarming and also heartbreaking yep. at the same time. Yeah. Simultaneously. They just cannot, they cannot walk away. Yeah. How do you do that? How are you going to transport them? That's going to be impossible. How do you leave them? You can't. So you just say, and I hope that they are okay. I hope that their cats are okay. And I hope that this invasion loses steam. Yeah. Putin, get the hell out of there. Thanks for sharing that one too. Yeah. We'll post a link to that as well. Um, so you can follow them. 
I know I saw in the news this morning that they hit one of their major communications towers. So I know they're definitely trying to shut down their communication to each other in the outside world. So we'll just hope that we can follow them and keep seeing what's going on as as much as possible. But Megan, let's move on to some of our Peace Corps, return Peace Corps stories because they are amazing. We actually have, we have only two stories from Peace Corps volunteers um, that we're going to share today. Um, We have another story from one of our friends and listeners. That's another core, a hardcore core Marine Corps. Well, I told you earlier, my dad, when it was Veterans Day, actually was wrote to me and was like, hey, I just want to wish you a happy Veterans Day. I know you were in the Peace Corps, but it's still you're sacrificing time in your life to go to another place uh, on behalf of the U.S. government. And I'm like, all right, there you go. That's right. <laughs> That's great. Thank you. Or going on behalf of the U- the U.S. government to spy on other countries. I mean, well, they, they think we're in the CIA. We're not, <laughs> Just kidding. Not we're spies. not spies. <laughs> um, but yeah, the I would say outside of war times, commands like the CBs, um, they do a lot of construction mm-hmm. work and try to do almost like peacekeeping missions, things that will help out. Mm-hmm whatever that government has asked for. So I know where we were Peace Corps, that happened. A lot of a lot of infrastructure was built in like the 80s and stuff by CBs. So there are factions of military that do those kinds of peacekeeping missions. Yeah, totally. So I'll start with a story we received from a listener and she sent us an email and I'm just going to go with what she signed her email as. <laughs> yeah, that sounds good. <laughs> Which was Jana Didi, which is really cute. So that's really cute. Jana Didi, this is your story. Um, she says that she was a Nepali N175 agricultural cooperativist specialist from 1993 to 95. And she wrote us a pretty cool story. So I'm just going to read it from her words. Are you ready, Megan and everyone? I'm ready. It took several weeks for me to realize that having rats in your apartment was not an emergency, (laughs) which I immediately like right off the bat, I'm like, Let's hear this because that is so true. Up to that point, I'd been telling everyone I met that, and this is in air quotes, to pray Musa Cha translates to there are too many mice. Although I still have issues with the word Musa for a big gray rat rodent. This was one of my major talking points, having conquered the fact that I indeed like sweet tea and that this was, that it is very tasty. Looking back, I have so much more appreciation of my poor neighbors politely listening to my to my deranged toddler-like ramblings, especially since I was telling myself how good I was doing. (laughs) I had high respect for myself, way too much than I was earned. A gray rat scampered through the overhead beams of the seamstress shop as I was placing an order for yet another house dress. I didn't realize the newfound freedom of being able to get anything I wanted custom made would turn out to be unwearable in public. (laughs) (laughs) As pronounced by my bahini, when she complimented me on my house clothes, a clear hint to not go outside with them on. That's when it really really hit me. Here I am complaining about something everyone was aware of. My coworker showed me the damage rats had done to the daikon radish crop growing in the nook of my curvy Himalayan mountain road. Large chunks the size of peach seeds had been gnawed out of the pearly white crunchy vegetables. I mean, daikon is like super good. I like that stuff. Yeah, it's pretty delicious. We use it in soups a lot. And then she wrote, Eddie Lemocha, which I'm not sure what that means, but it must mean something in Nepalese. Oh, you're definitely saying it correctly, I'm sure. 100%. <laughs> I'm really good at Nepalese. Definitely. So at it. And she continues on, 
Living in a working barn over a water buffalo and a goat, sharing the top floor with seed potatoes didn't help the situation either. My bedroom was the size of a tapestry I had thumbtacked to the ceiling to keep the rats from dropping on my face. Oh my God. Sorry, I have to stop for a minute. That's fun. <laughs> but she didn't have a mosquito net. I thought that was like standard issue. Mosquito yeah, net. Yeah, I had a mosquito net like tucked in under my bed, you know, like hanging from the ceiling. My um, host family, their cat liked me because I actually fed it. And so, but she would always bring pieces or dead rats and lay them on the end of my bed outside the mosquito mm. net. And it would be like, my mosquito net was white. So it'd be like, there was always like blood stains all over. I was like, Ew. that's awesome. But at least they couldn't like get in. Right. Right. Yeah. Just to think of like a tapestry holding rats from falling on you while you're sleeping. <laughs> it just makes my... Really uncomfortable. So she said, yeah, to keep them from dropping on her face while she slept and was partitioned off by a wooden door. The grandfather would keep an eye on the kids while he threshed the hay for the animals feed. He loved to communicate with me by miming and acting out everything he said with great theatrical flair. <laughs> His confidence in my nepple. Nepali language skills so low. So when he explained how the rats had died by acting, being stabbed or choked to death by poison or writhing on the floor as if caught in a trap, I started feeling guilty about their demise. I realized there was always a rat at the foot of the Ganesh who served as the Vahana. I think I said that right. This seemed like a mythical or mystical sign that I should just accept the situation and move forward. Maybe expand my vocabulary a bit. <laughs> when this peaceful acceptance of cohabitation with rat roommates started developing, I noticed that they had left. No more rustling sounds on the plastic under the tapestry or grinding sounds on the bottom of the door corner. My pink clothes wash soap square was unblemished with tiny teeth marks. Oh no, that's right. They eat soap. I forgot about that. Maybe it was just the season and they took to the fields, but I was convinced we had made a cosmic understanding. <laughs> So this is what happens when you're a Peace Corps. You just think like overthink things and you're like, they understand me. Because you spend so much time thinking about it, right? Yeah. So then I put the two by four that I'd used to bang on the walls at all night down and slept soundly. So I guess, yeah, she's banging the walls to make sure that the, they go away. So she's like, I don't need this anymore. I'm just going to go to sleep. Imagine the shock <laughs> I had while I was making my bed and came across one last rat. Oh, God. My bed frame was carefully measured to be a bit longer than my height and just about the width of a cot. I had a soft two-inch padded mattress made down the road by a large bazaar cloth, bazaar like Z-A-A-R, not weird, cloth shop. My vahini procured it for me so I would not have to pay a tourist pricing. Nice. I had hand sewn the sheet covering the mattress and slept on top of it, zipped up safely in my fleece lining sleeping bag. The rat's carcass was laying flat on top of the wooden slats. It reminded me of a cartoon of a runover by steamroller effect. It was completely squashed and dried out. Its small frame frozen in one last horrific dash to escape. Had I scared off all the other rats by murdering one in cold blood? Maybe word had gotten out that I was to be avoided for being so cruel. So much profound insights. Yet again, I was proven to be unaware. Maybe that was the real message. That is a fun story. It's like this whole relationship with rats that she was working out like while she's just trying to like live. And those are the things I think when you go as a Peace Corps, you don't, I mean, you're like, you know, there's going to be mosquitoes, there's going to be some stuff, but you don't really think about it or really get it until you're actually there. Thank you for that story. Yeah, we didn't have too many rats. It was the cockroaches. You had the cockroach situation. You had rats. We had mice, but not rats. You didn't see rats? Where I was staying, we had rats, like literally the size of like the size of a cat. And so, and I remember they had this little lowrider dog that would 
chase them around, like a little bigger than a dachshund. And I was just like, that rat is almost as big as you are. <laughs> the dog was like, I got this. We only had small mice, no rats. But I think because we were like pretty far out, uh, I think the closer you got to where more people lived, mm-hmm. the larger the uh, small mammals were. Yeah. Mine was just like 9,000 different kinds of ants. And I would always try to figure out which ones did what. Like some of them like electronics. Some of them like water. Some of them like sweet stuff. Some of them like rice. There's so many different kinds. Some of them just want to bite you for no reason. Just for the heck of it. I was always like, what kind of ant is this? There was always a new one. There was always a different and new kind of ant that I was discovering. We also got a story from, and it was actually a recorded story from a very good friend of mine, Anne-Marie, and her dad, Mike Gowell. She, he was a Peace Corps volunteer in Fiji from 70 to 72. I've known both of them for a while. Actually, Anne-Marie is an amazing biologist here uh, from Guam, and she spent a lot of time in islands throughout Micronesia. She actually grew up on Pompeii for a while. She's just the coolest, and she's a great paddler, so we paddled together a lot. Last year when we did this, she had mentioned that she wanted her dad to share his story. We have it this year, which is really exciting. So yeah, we'll just play it, and you guys can have a listen. It's too long a story. Two other Peace Corps guys and, and an American guy visiting us ended up pulling this boat that had broken down in the middle of nowhere out in the really deep water. And we just swam in front of it, pulling it, you know, with an anchor line for a whole day. And we, and we got on a sandbar and had it overnight on the sandbar. The next day we went another half day or so before we could find any shipping to flag down to save us or give us a tow. But I was in this really deep water, you know, offshore. It was all dark blue. And we were just looking all around. Sometimes there were jellyfish there. We'd dodge them. But you never know about the sharks, you know, it was really mm-hmm. scary. We just had our fins and uh, masks and snorkels on. And of course, the Fijian guy who's the captain of the boat, he, he steered the boat while we pulled it. <laughs> didn't you say they didn't want to go in the water because they had bad, what is it, taboo with the shark or something with the sharks? So, some Fijians are that way. I'm not sure that it was his problem. Oh, okay. But, uh, <laughs> but it's true. Yeah, if, if they're... Uh, offend the shark god, they're not going to go anywhere near the water. <laughs> some, of, some of the Fijians I used to know, they were really scared. And on the other hand, if they were in good with the shark god, they weren't afraid of sharks at all. Yeah, I told you how they spearfish and they hold them up above their heads out of the water and push the shark away with their feet. <laughs> <laughs> and they weren't afraid. I said, oh no, we haven't offended the shark god, so he's not going to hurt us. <laughs> yeah, our grandpa was, must have not been in good with the shark gods because he got bitten. Yeah. Do you remember that, James? How he had like, it looked like an extra elbow. (laughs) On his body too, yeah. I don't know. I just remember remember the arm. Yeah, I just remember the arm. I think we had a picture of that. I might have, I I probably have it in a slide somewhere. Um, Why were you guys out in the That's a good story. Or where were you going? Were you going between islands? Yeah, we went to uh, a remote island that's supposed to be the best spear fisherman traditionally in Fiji, Kia Island. And there was a Peace Corps guy there that we knew. And he was based there with fisheries. Alan Banner and his father was a professor of marine biology at University of Hawaii. And he grew up spearing fish all over. Uh, I don't know if you guys know Johnston Island. Remember that one between Hawaii and Micronesia? Before we went into Peace Corps, uh, he was sent there to spear moray eels to collect them to study Stigmatera fish. So he spent a couple summers just spearing moray eels. And he's the best free diving spear fisherman I ever knew. And he was studying how they were commercially fishing from his island for the great big bumphead parrotfish. And they had just great oh, wow. big nets they were getting. And he recorded how they had to keep moving down this huge reef there. Uh, week after week, they'd fish out and they move farther. Fish out, 
move forward and they're just wiping out the resource. Oh, yeah. Get some good records of that. Uh, this is too long a story. Wait, he so you went out to go spearfishing with him. Is that why you went out? No, no, we went out to collect fish. We had all these um, candies and things and well, cigarettes too, I guess, and gum. And we'd take it to the village and we'd trade people say, uh, we want to collect all every different fish you have here. And we'll give you these things when you bring us the fish. And so we were trading off with the kids and, and even the ladies there that would uh, do the coral reef fishing. And then we had you know, preservative and we were pickling and saving every different kind of fish we could find. But that guy, Alan Banner, is the, I've told you this story probably before, but he went on to Samoa after that and he was raising turtles in uh, Western Samoa uh, with a turtle hatchery. Um, and I visited him there at Pale Laumei is the location, which is the home of the turtle in Samoa. And he was based there with a hatchery and while he was still in Peace Corps. And he would take care of the um, the green sea turtle eggs that were laid on an island right near the hatchery. I went out fishing with him and oh, he's just so good. What a great diver. He showed me the... Uh, trophy he had what was it dog tooth shark uh, dog tooth tuna it's a big local tuna that we have them around guam i see them once in a while but they're not fished out they actually with his spear gun he speared a 90 pound one and brought it in he had a perfect hit you know broke his backbone and he just had to grab it and he hung on to the fish and brought it back to shore but it was 90 pounds <laughs> that's huge wow. those things get really big. they get really big I can tell you more stories about them, but that's other other stories, I think, the huge ones I've seen. I visited him there, and I saw what he's doing, and then uh, this, I could elaborate a lot more on it. Afterwards, maybe just a month or two after I uh, snorkeled with him there and when he was spearing fish, he was just snorkeling for fun, wasn't spearing fish, with his girlfriend and, on a Sunday. He didn't see it, but it was in the area where the turtles nest, where he was working. This big tiger shark came up, and he didn't see it coming. And he grabbed him from the side, and, and his girlfriend saw it take him away, and that was the end of him. He's gone. But you know, those big tiger sharks are there to feed on the adult turtles. Yeah, you gotta watch out. So somebody that. snorkeling. On it. But you know, this guy—if if Alan had seen that shark, he, he could have saved himself. But it apparently, just came so fast he didn't even see it because he was so good in the water. But uh, and I sent condolences to his parents in Hawaii about that. Well, and they never found any remains. But his father sent back um, a note with a quote from *The Tempest*. You know Shakespeare, *The Tempest*. Yeah. And it, uh, I think I can quote it. Almost I can quote it. It's something like, full four fathoms, our sun lies. The corals, his bones, the pearls, his eyes. Oh, yeah, that <laughs> almost made me cry. <laughs> but that was in, in Shakespeare from, I guess, a shipwreck. Or, you know, their son died. But uh, that's where we went to visit him, though, on the island in, in Kia Island, in the north uh, top of Fiji, the second big island in Fiji, above Vanuatu. Or Vanuatu. That's where he was stationed for Peace Corps? Yeah, and he told us about the, everyone in Fiji said, oh, those are the best uh, divers and spearfishermen of all the Fijians. And, you know, you know how they could dive deep. They they would dive down and purposely break their eardrums from the pressure. <laughs> they just go as deep as they wanted and uh, didn't feel yeah. the pressure because their eardrums were broken. And then can they better. hear after I, that? <laughs> I, yeah, I guess. I've heard of people doing that, you know, too, and other divers do it on purpose. I can tell you another story. When I was um, at Yale, one of the guys on the on the cheerleading Wait, hold on. Me. You didn't finish that story, though. So you went out on the island oh. to visit him. Oh, yeah. And then why yeah. did your boat break down? Well, we were coming back to the mainland um, port you know, nearest there. And I don't know why it broke down, but something broke. And there was just the one engine that didn't work. And we were stuck out there. And it was not near his island. And it wasn't near the big islands. How many miles is that? I'd have to look at a map. But um, probably 50 miles or something like that. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'd have to check on the map. I Could you that. see the island in the distance? Mm, no, nope. Not until we pulled and pulled and pulled and finally we could see it. Yeah. 
Um, I told this story, I, I managed to uh, translate it into Fijian. I could kind of tell it to people in Fiji or the Fijians, and they were all amazed. <laughs> <laughs> Because <laughs> they would never do that. They're like crazy. Waitui Loa Loa. That's the, the big ocean, big black ocean. Waitui Loa Loa. That's what we were saying. We really appreciate that story. A couple of things that Anne Marie followed up on afterwards was that she said the actual Tempest quote is Full fathom five, thy father lies. Of his bones are coral made. Those are pearls that were his eyes. For in this case, the guy who was killed by the tiger shark, his parents had modified it to say our son instead of father. So, but anyway, she she wrote that and she also said that in true Mike Gal fashion, he meanders a bit. <laughs> so they, she said that she heard her brother feel bad because they kept having to like badgering him to stay focused. But really, I think it's cool, like the way he, you know, because it's his memories, right? He's really reaching back for these memories and something that to this day is like emotional for him to remember. Well, a little bit about Mike Gal is... Uh, he worked for the Park Service here for a long time. He's a he is a really amazing uh, marine biologist and just all around biologist for a lot of different species, terrestrial and marine. And he's just the nicest guy. Everybody loves him. He's the coolest. And he also paddles too. He got Anne-Marie into paddling when she was like a little kid. Just her parents are the best. So I really appreciate them sharing that story. It's the story that he told. It's kind of a little bit um, what I'm going to talk about for our Patreon episode, which we're running a little behind on because of the situation. But we're or hopefully we're going to get together this weekend and record that. It is coming. And it's also listener request stuff. So it's coming up. Thank you, Anne-Marie and Mike and everybody. But we still have a core story. We have one last story. Yeah, I'll read this one. So uh, this is from Curtis Wasmer, who actually we just posted something. We, we have a new thing for our website that we posted up. We've been talking about that Nature Nerds Artisans or Makers page. And Curtis actually has a company called Built on the Rock Driftwood Decor. So he actually makes all sorts of cool stuff with driftwood. I think we've talked about him one time before as well. And thank you, Megan, for doing that. You like did the damn thing yesterday. I was like, yay, it's so cool. It looks so nice. <laughs> Honestly, there's yeah, no, there's no charge for that. We just want you guys to know that we support the stuff that you do. Especially, I love that Curtis's uh, business is about using stuff that, you know, would be maybe considered nature's trash if you will. And he makes stuff out of it. That's so great. I love it. So yeah, Curtis wrote us, he said, so I've never been part of the Peace Corps, but I have been part of a Corps, the Marine Corps. Just hear me out. <laughs> <laughs> Says, I'm the first to recognize that these are not all the same. They exist for completely different purposes and the, and the philosophical divide would compare to the Grand Canyon. But I promise you many, many, many of the experiences and stories from either core mm -hmm. are going to resonate one to the other. And I totally get it. Uh, case in point, it was 1985 in Southern California. I was living off base in the small town, small beach town of San Clemente, just north of Camp Pendleton. I feel like I should know where that is, but I don't. A single 20-year-old answerable only to myself and the U.S. Marine Corps, of course. I and my friends spent as much time as humanly possible on the local beach, challenging ourselves to stay as close to, quote, home as possible without seeing any other jarheads. If we did see others, we'd move on further away from the base. Is the jarhead only Marine Corps? Jarhead is only Marine 
Marine Corps. Yeah. Okay. Because, but they all have to shave their head. Because to me, it's all the same, right? The way they shave. They all have to do like the high and tight. But I feel like there's a story about jarheads, like why they're called jarheads. Uh, Maybe Curtis (laughs) knows it. Curtis, tell us. All right. So he goes on to say desert training was becoming more and more part of the norm. So we often found ourselves redeployed to the wonderful base of 29 palms, affectionately known to us as 29 stumps. The only palm trees found there were the ones planted around the commandant's headquarters. 29 Palms was or is a vast desert suitable for training exercises and all manner of desert experience. So we're the U.S. Marines, most of us in our early 20s, quite arrogant and most definitely invincible. We would move from position to position, simulating advancement, and then wait for other units to leapfrog our position. Then we would leapfrog theirs and so on. Days and days of this activity. During downtime between movements, we were pretty much left to our own devices to entertain ourselves and pass the time. We would often find trouble where none had before existed. On this particular day, trouble came in came in the form of a hat band or helmet band, to be more precise. One of us, maybe Bunny Hunter, thought we needed rattlesnake skin helmet bands. So I guess this is like a band that you put around your helmet, maybe on like the part closest to your head where you can like hold stuff. Yeah, I'm picturing it. What a great idea. With bayonets and K-bars in hand, we set out to rattles- set out rattlesnake hunting, unaware that every creature on 29 Palms is protected to one degree or another. <laughs> I was say. We would find them, kill them, skin them, cook them and eat them and ultimately make rattlesnake skin hat bands. That's so Rambo. How else would we secure cigarettes and small bottles of sunscreen and whatnot on our helmets? 100%. How else would you do it? (laughs) I feel it. Uh, Rattlesnakes on 29 Palms were everywhere. And remember our self-perceived invincible status? So we were successful until we weren't. Three skins were hanging and drying. Only Adrian, because he looked like Rocky Balboa. So I guess his name was not actually Adrian. (laughs) (laughs) What? Love it. Because he looked like Rocky Balboa. Yo, Adrian. Was yet to get a snake. We found one for him, but he hesitated as he moved on it. And you already know, got bit. Oh, Oh, God. All of us knew first aid and knew what to do, but there was no way Adrian was getting out of there without us performing old, quote, Old West style snake bite care. (laughs) I'm already picturing it. They're like sucking out the venom and spitting it like all. It's going to be fine, Adrian. He was bit on his forearm and we knew real care was going to happen and that he'd be okay. But nonetheless, an X was carved into his arm at the bite location. And each of us took a turn removing, quote, removing the venom, some sort of brotherhood or rite of passage ridiculousness, if you will, which I think is hilarious. Good thing he was bit on his forearm. Exactly. I was thinking the same thing. I'm like, oh, if, I bet if he was bit somewhere yeah. else in some sort of nether region, like they'd be like, sorry, bro. Yeah. I think you're good. He says, we moved quickly to get back to camp. And though he could easily walk, we carried Adrian the whole way. <laughs> I love that. I, so mean, I think that's kind of smart because his heart would be pumping less if they're carrying him, you know, so that's yes, good. That, that, was, was, a good that was a good move, right? If anybody remembers our snake episodes. Yeah. Definitely good to not, it's good to stay still as possible. Uh, We got our story straight to avoid any reprimand, but knew that tomorrow we'd be sporting our helmet bands. We would cross that bridge of explaining then. (laughs) Adrian was sent back to Camp Pendleton and completely okay. By the way, my name was Wazzy, a derivative of my last name, Wasmer. Don't die out there, Curtis. Love it. That's a great story. I love that he totally realizes that probably a lot of the animals that they were interacting with were protected protected. and they're just like just being dudes and going around and like let's do this because we want to eat a cool helmet band that looks right 
And I love that he's like, we'll just have to explain the helmet bands later because it's already done. Like we already did it. It already happened. There's something about this story that totally reminds me of some of the males who joined Peace Corps in our group. They would like, they would grow out yes. with like local guys and they would try to like get to some level of like, I don't know what to call it, like bro level. <laughs> Or they would, and I remember they were just so stinky, and we'd be like, "This is not, this is not acceptable." Like, Stop. We get it. They would wear like the wrap, like the they called a thu, you know, like wrap, and and we're like, "But people here actually shower." On the other level, on the female side of things, I feel like we were doing the same thing. We were like, "I can work in that tarot patch." Oh, I can learn to weave this thing. Oh yeah, for sure. So many finger leg face cuts from trying to be as hardcore as the women we're like i got this and you don't you just don't got it and then it's and it's okay it's totally fine <laughs> but here let me do your taxes <laughs> exactly <laughs> like, yeah just... let me help you start that nonprofit for your community organization <laughs> it's an exchange right you know things i don't know i might know a couple things probably not so much but maybe a couple things you don't know but basically just teach me how to be a better human yeah absolutely it's an exchange but i would say that i got a lot more out of it than probably they got out of meeting me i don't know i learned a lot I'm sure there's still, there's people telling our stories somewhere. Definitely. I wanted to add a Megan into our nature nerds and listeners out there that when I was prepping for Peace Corps, and I'm pretty sure you did this too, you want to like read all the things, right? You want to like, what's it going to be like? Because it's such an unknown, right? I had gone to visit a couple of my friends, and I know I mentioned this before, a couple of my friends in Ecuador, and they recommended some books. And I want to pass along these recommendations just because... Um, if anybody is thinking about going to the Peace Corps, there's some classics that I think you have to read. And even if you're not going to the Peace Corps, this guy's books were so good. It's uh, The author's name is Moritz Thompson, and there's no P in that. It's just T-H-O-M-S-E-N. And I'll put all the links for these, these books if you're interested. He actually lived in Ecuador. He was a Peace Corps there, and then he ended up staying and he actually died of cholera in 1991, but he spent a total of 35 years in Ecuador. So he was one of those Peace Corps volunteers that just never left. But he wrote a book and it was, I read a couple of his books. Um, it was called Living Poor, a Peace Corps Chronicle. And it was first published in 1969, but there's a newer edition from 2011. It's really good. Oh, he got a lot of praise by other writers such as Paul Thoreau, Thomas Cahill, Larry McMurtry, Lonesome Dove, one of my other favorite books. And the other one I read was The Farm on the River of Emeralds. All of these are basically about his life in Ecuador. There's another one called The Saddest Pleasure. I think I read that one too, but it's just been a long time. So um, another one called My Two Wars that was published after his death in 1996. And then um, another one called Bad News from a Black Coast. I haven't read that one, but these are probably some of his writings that were published later. But anyway, check out his stuff. And just a couple others that I read that were pretty good. There was another one by this author, Mike Tidwell. It's called The Ponds of Columbia, although I probably am saying that wrong. But this one was published um, in 1996. 
This is the one I was telling you, Megan, about the guy who crashed his motorcycle. Kind of his whole life and everything that happened um, while he was a Peace Corps volunteer in Zaire. And it's really funny. It's actually a pretty hilarious one. And then the last one that I remember reading, but I think I read a bunch more, was another one by a lady named Susan Lauer. It's L-O-W-E-R-R-E, but it's called Under the Neem Tree. And she was also a Peace Corps volunteer in Senegal in 1985. And I think the other guy in Zaire. He was there in the 80s. But anyway, his story is funny. Her story was way more, I think it was a little more gritty. It's like told with, they say, affection and anger. I think it's good. It's very honest, right? About her experience. And I mean, anybody who can write a book, good on you. I'm not good at that stuff. So those are a couple of books that I read and I recommend and I'll make a list. We'll put it with the other links for this episode if you're interested. Someday, you know, when my book comes out, just it's going to be amazing. <laughs> well, we're going to definitely write a book um, for just the podcast. Totally. No, I just wanted to say thank you to everybody who sent in stories. And thank you for bearing with us while we're in this state of not togetherness. Of recording separately. And we know it sounds a little off, but we appreciate it. And we'll be back to normal next week. For sure. And yeah, if you are interested in hearing some regular sounding episodes, you can always join our Patreon for as little as $5 a month. You can listen to some extra stories. And I did actually also get a couple science news uh, posts up on the Patreon. Woohoo! Just killing it. Just, I mean, so productive yesterday. So productive. Check us out on Apple Podcasts. If you leave us a five-star review, I will send you a sticker. And I'm a little backed up right now. So those of you that I owe stickers to, it's coming shortly. Yeah. And check us out on Instagram and listen wherever you listen to podcasts and Twitter. Jen is very prolific on the Twitters. Awesome. Thank you, everybody. And until next time, don't die out there. Bye. Bye.